0: Good morning, RBC. It's great to be with you all this morning. My name is David. If I've not gotten the chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Reston Bible Church. I get to oversee our shepherd groups and our young adults um, to uh, name just a couple of the, the things that I get to do here. Uh, if you're a young adult especially and you're new with us, uh, please come talk to me after this service or there's a group of young adults over there who would also love to talk with you if you're new with us. Go ahead and you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And as you turn there, I know Chris and Michael already mentioned it, but let me just throw in my two cents as well. Ladies, you got to go to this retreat. It's going to be a great time of fellowship, of staying away at a hotel with one another, of, of uh, keeping the kids behind for those of you who have kids. And Elisa Childers, uh, there is few speakers more top-notch than she is. I mean, her story of deconstructing and then reconstructing her faith around the Bible and the historic creeds and and proclamations of Christianity is astounding. But she is not an academic. She is not someone who's going to speak over you. She is a woman of the heart and the mind. Um, So let me just encourage you, please go and talk to the the women at the table in the lobby after this service um, before you leave here this morning. Well, last week Jim opened up a brand new series on the book of Philippians that we are calling "To Live Is Christ," which comes from Philippians chapter one, verses twenty-one. And Jim walked us through the first chapter of Philippians last week, where Paul greets the church in Philippi. He encourages their commitment to the gospel, even when it's preached by people with questionable motives. And he encourages the church to labor well and specifically to labor well with joy, joy amidst even suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering is one of the major themes that we see in the book of Philippians. And this morning I get to unpack this glorious, beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2. If the book of Philippians was a batch of brownies, I feel like chapter 2 is that center brownie right in the middle, the one with no crust, the one with just fudgy goodness. The whole batch is delicious. There is not a bad brownie. There is not a bad passage in the book of Philippians, but there is something extraordinary about this one. So let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll dive in this morning together. Jesus, we adore you this morning as your people. We love you. Help us to emulate you. Help us to emulate your character, your humility, your deference for others. Help us to worship you rightly. Lord, I pray that as a church that we would be one unified body that says that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight lord you are our rock and our redeemer and it's in all and it's in that name of jesus that all God's people said amen amen, amen. in the world of sports there's a lot of discussion about who is the greatest of all time in a particular sport or at a particular position who is the goat is it jordan or lebron is it messi or ronaldo Is it Brady or Montana? Is it Belichick or Shula? Someone stopped me after the first service and said, hey, you forgot Lombardi. I'm sorry, all right? I'm a Patriots fan, so those last two, I do have my own preferences there from New England. But there's not just talk about who is the GOAT, but on what it takes to be called the GOAT, the greatest of all time. There are many admirable character traits that these athletes possess. uh, A level of intelligence, a, a drive, an unmatched level of commitment, even an exceptional focus on the details. But there are often also unadmirable character traits of what it takes to be called the GOAT. The unhealthy obsession the manipulative tendencies, the unmatched arrogance, and the ruthlessness that readily burns bridges and sacrifices even one's closest relationships all in the name of being the goat, the name at the top of the list. If you look at the personal lives of many of these so-called goats, they're often a train wreck and ones that we would hardly want for ourselves. In Philippians 2, Paul makes the argument that Jesus is the greatest of all time. That according to verse 9, he is the one with the name above every name and he is the one with the name that at every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, that he is the greatest of all time. But the character trait that Paul focuses on at the center of his status of goatness is not manipulation Or arrogance or ruthlessness. It's humility. It's a humility that's shown in Christ's service and submission. And it's a humility in which Paul argues here that we are to emulate both individually and corporately as a church. As I mentioned earlier, our theme in this series is To Live is Christ from chapter 1, verse 21. And a natural question for us when we see the title, To Live is Christ, is what does it mean to live is Christ? If to live is Christ is to live as Christ, then how did Christ live? And how then are we to live ourselves? After an appeal for unity in verses 1 through 4, Paul moves through three main sections that I'm identifying in this passage. In verses 5 through 8, he uh, gives us the downward incarnation of Christ. In verses 9 through 11, he gives us the upward exaltation of Christ. And then in verses 12 through 18, he implores us that we have an outward expression of our salvation because we are now in Christ. So the downward incarnation, the upward exaltation, and the outward expression of our salvation. And it's in that last section that we are going to get really practical with some good applications. So let's go ahead and start with this downward incarnation. Actually, before we get there, rather, let's start with this appeal for unity in verses 1 through 4 before we get to the downward incarnation. Let's look at verse 1 together. Paul says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Paul saying, if those are true, which they are, if you have any encouragement uh, of, of Christ, which you do, if you have any comfort in love, which you do, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, which you possess, then this, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The Christian isn't just to unify around anything. We're not supposed to sacrifice truth in order to live in unity. We are, however, to revolve and to unify around this thing called the mind of Christ, the same mind. What is that same mind we see in verse five? If you jump past three and four to five, the ESV reads this, have this mind among yourselves Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm preaching out of the ESV, but for those of you NIV folks, I actually like the NIV a little bit better here. The NIV says this In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And what is that same mindset that Paul is talking about? It's a mindset expressed in verses 3 and 4. So jump there with me, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, it's really easy to talk about unity and to be all aboard this idea of unity if it requires that you stop doing what you're doing and you revolve around what I want to do. If you relinquish your selfish ambition and you come over to my team of my selfish ambition. But what Paul is saying is that true unity in the body of Christ does not start with someone else. It starts with me and it starts with you. That when I relinquish my selfish ambition, when I consider myself as lesser than others, when I look to the interests of others, that is when unity is formed. And there's no one to better illustrate this deference that leads to unity than the person of Jesus Christ himself. And that example of Jesus's humility that leads to unity leads us to verses 6 through 11. Verses 6 through 11 is one of the most glorious, one of the most exalted, one of the most beloved passages in the whole Bible. This is often called the kenosis passage that describes the self-emptying nature of Christ. Likely, this is an early Christian hymn that the Philippians would have been familiar with, that Paul would have given them and they would have said, oh, we recognize that. But regardless of whether or not it was a familiar Christian hymn or whether this is Paul writing this on his own accord, Paul was eating his Wheaties for breakfast before he wrote this because it is a glorious passage. Speaking of the downward incarnation of Christ Jesus and the upward incarnation, exaltation of that same Christ. So let's look at this downward incarnation, this downward incarnation in verses 5 through 7. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of of men. Now, if you're a new Christian, uh, that word incarnation might sound really academic and unfamiliar to you. But that's the word that Christians have historically used to describe this truth in verse 7 that Jesus took the form of a servant, that he was born in the likeness of men. You might have recognized that part of the word carne, right? If you go to a restaurant, you order chili con carne, you are getting chili with meat incarnation god with meat god with human flesh i hope it's not uh, heretical to compare jesus to chili con carne but i see i i hope that you get my point i really do that the incarnation is god come to dwell with us in human flesh Now go back to verse 7, because there's a key phrase here that we cannot misunderstand. If we misunderstand this key phrase, we will stray away from the truth of the gospel itself. Verse 6 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then it says this, But emptied himself. What does it mean that Jesus came from heaven to earth and emptied himself? Does it mean that Jesus put his divinity, his divine being, his divine status, that he put it on the shelf, that he was not actually God on earth? Does it mean that Jesus went sort of 50-50, he lessened his divine being, he emptied himself of part of his divine being, and he came as like 50% God, 50% man? You know, I was in Trader Joe's the other day, I saw I saw Brookies, right, they're a half- Brownies, half cookies. Did Jesus go brookie mode? I'm sorry. Brownies, chili con carne, brookies. What am I thinking? This is the second service. Y'all are hungry. As Christians, we do not say that Jesus was not God. And we do not say that Jesus went brookie mode. Jesus was not 50% God and 50% man. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. The Nicene Creed, which Christians have historically recited, says it like this, Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This is what separates us from Jehovah's Witnesses or Latter-day Saints who say that Jesus was not the fullness of God in human form. So, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? If Paul is not referring to Jesus emptying himself of his divine being, what is he emptying himself of? It seems that Paul is referring not to Jesus emptying himself of his divine being, but his divine privileges. Notice that the focus in, in verse 6 is that Jesus did not count being God a thing to be grasped. That's not what it says. It says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In order to come as a human, Jesus had to give up his divine rights and privileges in order to identify with the very ones that he came to save. There's a great theologian that I think gives a helpful analogy here. His name's Noah Smith. Noah Smith is on staff here, and he's, he's in seminary right now, and he wrote a paper on the book of Philippians, and I think uh, in the paper he gives a, a really good illustration. He said, comparing Jesus emptying himself of his divine being to, to his divine privileges is like talking about someone who is blind versus someone who has closed their eyes. The person who is blind has relinquished his eyesight for good, the person who has closed their eyes has relinquished the privileges of being or having sight. Jesus was not blind. He was merely closing his eyes to his divine privileges. And he does this because of what we see in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. He empties himself in order to be found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even Death on a cross. The reason why Jesus laid aside his divine privileges was because he was going on a rescue mission. I love how Brian Chapel, the Presbyterian preacher and professor, he illustrates this. He relays the story of an African missionary who shared about a village in Africa where the requirements to be the village chief was to be the strongest man in the village. And to signify that the chief was in fact the chief, he would wear this uh, magnificent headdress and ceremonial robes. One day in the village, a man carrying water out of the shaft of a deep well fell and broke his leg and lay helpless at the bottom of the well. No one in the village was strong enough to be able to climb down the well to pick up that man with a broken leg and climb back up the well. So they summoned the chief. And the chief, when he got to the well and he saw the plight of the man at the bottom of the well, he took aside his headdress. He emptied himself of his robes in order to climb down the well, to put the man on his back, to climb back up the well and to rescue that man's life. Friends, when the chief took off his ceremonial headdress and his robe, did he cease being the chief? No, he had to come to save that man at the bottom of the well and he had to do that by becoming in the likeness of the same man that he was coming to save. And friends, Jesus Christ has done that for us this morning. He has laid aside his divine privileges and he has not counted equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he climbed down that well after removing his divine privileges from himself. He carried us on our back because we were stuck in our own sin and he rescued us once and for all. That we get to sing together this morning as we just did, who pulled me out of that pit? He did. He did. And he did that by laying aside his divine privileges and coming in the form of the likeness of men. That's what we've proclaimed this morning, isn't it, friends? But the good news is that Jesus did not stop there by rescuing us on the cross. Because what we see is that Paul turns. He shows us the glory of the humiliation of the downward incarnation of Christ but he also shows us the glory of that same Christ's upward exaltation. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of God the Father. Oftentimes we talk about how we worship a crucified king. Oftentimes we talk about how we worship a resurrected king. But, friends, this morning I want to remind you that we don't just worship a crucified king and we don't just worship a resurrected king, we worship a reigning king. Who is in heaven on the throne right now, interceding for his people and sustaining his church. And we are here this morning because as Peter would say later on in the New Testament, we have a chief shepherd who is managing and caring for his church right now from his throne in heaven. That we serve a reigning king this morning, don't we church? And that at the name of Jesus, at his name, verse 9, every Knee should bow and every tongue should confess. This is reminiscent of Revelation chapter five verse thirteen, which works off earlier in Isaiah forty-five. Revelation five thirteen says, "And I, John, heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. He's, he's going everywhere, and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might." forever and ever friends we look forward to that day don't we or we join the whole heavenly council and we sing that glory and honor and blessing goes to the lamb and friend if you aren't a christian with us this morning i want to welcome you it's great to have you here this morning You may be someone who is here for a variety of reasons. You may be trying to figure out exactly who Jesus is. Maybe you would even consider yourself a Christian. But if I asked you, if you say Jesus Christ is Lord, that central confession in verse 11, you would say, no, I I think he was a great person. I think he had great teaching. But I wouldn't call him Christ. I wouldn't call him God incarnate. This happened to me just less than two months ago. I was at Ridgetop Coffee, uh, just down Cascades off Ridgetop Circle. And I met with a young man who's in his 20s. And he, and he said, I've been a Christian my whole life. I said, that's awesome. Who, who is Jesus to you? And he said, he's a good teacher. He's someone worthy of emulation. I said, that's awesome. I, I agree with those things 100%. Would, would you say he's divine? And he said, oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't say that. But friend, the central confession of the Christian is what we see in verse in verse 11, rather. That Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ, is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is divine. And if you are someone who has not yet proclaimed that this morning, this is an encouragement and a warning, but one day you will. One day your knee and my knee, it's not just yours, will be bowed. And one day your tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, as will mine. And our plea to you this morning is that this morning would be the morning where you confess that for the first time. That you place your faith in this Christ that has been described. This Christ who is God from eternity past. This Christ who humbled himself and came in human form. That he died on the cross for your sin in your place. And that he is reigning now. That you would, as John 3.16 says, acknowledge that God loved the world and God loved you enough to send his own son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You may not be familiar with a lot of scriptures, but I bet you're familiar with at least that one. Without Christ, we are perishing, but with Christ, we have eternal life. Without Christ, we were the man at the bottom of the well with a broken leg. But with Christ, we have been carried back to surface and back to life. And to do that, Christ emptied himself of his divine privileges and now has been upwardly exalted in the heavens. And if you are a Christian this morning, which most of us are, I want to remind you of another seemingly Christian hymn that Paul quotes in 2 Timothy 2. Paul says this, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Friends, our humiliation for the sake of Christ in this life, because we are are in Christ, will result to our exaltation with Christ in the next. That as Paul says in Galatians 4, we are co-heirs with christ i don't even know honestly what that is going to mean but i know it's awesome and i know it's a truth that we should hold on to well that feels like it could be a whole sermon in itself doesn't it but we still got like seven verses to go paul has established this humility of christ this downward incarnation that to live as christ is to live within his humility and he's also established this upward exaltation And now Paul is going to take the downward incarnation and the upward exaltation, and he's going to make a couple of appeals to us that we would outwardly express, that we would have an outward expression of that salvation that we have been given. Paul gives two imperatives, one kind of general and one specific. So let's look at this first imperative that we see in verses 12 through 13. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out. And this is the key phrase. Don't miss this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In light of the humility of Christ, the downward incarnation, and in light of the exaltation of Christ, we are to now, in verse 12, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, don't get it twisted. Some of you read that and you're like, what does Paul mean? I thought we aren't saved by our works, and now he's saying to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul, what are you getting at here? The English helps us. Because we, as Christians, confess that we are not saved by our works. We are saved by the merits of Christ alone. But it's helpful to read the preposition carefully. Notice that your English translations say, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. When you go to the gym to work out, you are not creating muscles out of thin air. You are exercising the muscles that you already have. And making them more operational, more functional, more useful. And Paul is saying the same thing here that as we are people who work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we are to make that salvation operable. We are to make that salvation tangible, functional, useful. Even though Jesus has done it all, we cannot just sit on the spiritual couch eating a bag of chips. That we have to take that salvation we've been given and do something with it. This is the heart behind our 5G philosophy of ministry. Our 5G philosophy of ministry that we gather, grow, give, and go all for the glory of God. We desire to work out our salvation in fear and trembling by doing this. That we don't just desire that we gather on Sundays, although that is a primary component of the Christian life, to be gathered with a local church. But we also encourage you to grow. Shepherd groups, ETS classes, women's Bible studies, the list goes on. That you don't just gather and grow, but that you give back. That you serve on Sunday mornings with the various gifts and skills that you have and the passions that you have. That you financially give to this church as a contributor with not just your time and your talent but also your treasure and that you don't just gather grow and give but that you go you start with a neighbor right next door you make a relationship with that neighbor you form a friendship with them think the engagement project and you ultimately hopefully get to share your faith with them You volunteer with some of our local mission partners. And even you might go internationally on a short-term mission trip. Or even some of you in this room are probably going to end up as long-term overseas missionaries. And in doing that, we work out our salvation as one unified church. But I love what Paul adds. He doesn't just say, work out your salvation. What does he say? Work out your salvation with what, church? Fear and trembling. Now... Fear and trembling is not referring to the fact that we do not trust our Heavenly Father. Fear and trembling is referring to the fact that we work out our salvation with the highest reverence for the Lord. This reverence is not at all uh, at odds with the joyful life that Paul describes throughout Philippians. After all, the The life that fears the Lord is the blessed life. Psalm 128 verse 1 says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. The problem with the lazy Christian is that he or she does not have a proper fear of the Lord. The problem with the lazy Christian, and I've been there too, and I'll probably have bouts of this in the future. So I'm not judging you. But the problem when we're spiritually lazy is most likely that we do not have a healthy fear of the one who has saved us. And so we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So the first outward expression is this, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now don't look ahead before we get to that second one. L- lift your eyes up for a second. I know, I know many of y'all already read it in first 14. That's all right. But what's going to happen is going to astound you if you read closely. Because I don't know what sort of application you're looking for next. Paul has described this glorious picture of the downward incarnation and the upward exaltation of Christ. He's described this imperative of how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And here's where Paul goes next. You ready for this? Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We're like, that's it? Like, I thought your application was going to be go preach the gospel to the nations, baptize thousands in the name of Christ, eradicate poverty in your local community. Like, I'm looking for that sort of application after that glorious passage. And you tell me to quit whining? To stop bickering? You know, it's like when we as, as uh, husbands, those married men in the room, when you, know, you have a moment where you look at your wife and you're like, wow, I just love that woman. And you turn to her and you say, Honey, I would take a bullet for you. And she's like, No one's shooting at me. Like, I don't need you to take a bullet for me. I need you to take out the trash without me asking. Like, that's what I need. And all the godly wives said, Amen, amen, amen. I have no personal experience with that, by the way. But let's think for a moment for a second of why Paul might go here. When we are suffering, as the Philippians are, and we are called to suffer with joy, the thing that often gets in the way of our joy is the words that come out of our mouth, that we complain and we bicker. Think of our Lord and Savior Jesus for a second and the model of not complaining that he gives. He gives us this great model on the cross rather than opening his mouth to complain as he would have had every right to do. What does he open his mouth to do while he's on the cross? Speak words of life. Offer salvation to the thief next to him. Offer salvation to the thief that doesn't end up taking it up. Asking his father to forgive the very ones who are mocking him. Even in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus give an instruction to the Apostle John to take care of his mother in his absence. Even on the cross, our Savior is not complaining and speaking words of life into those who are the very ones who are crucifying him. Contrast that with us. What sorts of things do we complain about? I can't believe they got my order wrong. I can't believe that cop out there after church is going to make me take a right onto Cascades when I need to take a left onto Cascades. Will they please stop showing Taylor Swift every time Travis Kelsey catches a pass? (laughs) We complain about some dumb things, don't we? And that's not a judgment on you. That's an indictment on myself. I have two daughters, and my oldest one's about to turn three. She's writing those terrible twos. And becoming a dad has done a lot of good things in my life. But one of the things it's done is it has shined a spotlight on how much I like to complain. We are just like the Israelites who at the beginning of Exodus 15, remember they've come out of Egypt, they've been rescued, they've been saved, they come through the Red Sea, and in Exodus 15 they sing a song of praise to the Lord who has rescued them. And then at the end of that very same chapter, they're already grumbling. If you read that story and you don't see yourself there, you've got to read it again. Because I see myself there, that's for sure. Last week, Jim quoted Johnny Erickson who's a personal hero of mine. Johnny Erickson Tata is a quadriplegic woman, a cancer survivor, and someone who endures a level of chronic pain on the regular that very few, if not none of us, are familiar with. Two days ago on Friday, she came out with an article on complaining and grumbling. It's always nice when one of your heroes comes out with an article on something you're about to preach on two days before you preach it. Thank you, Johnny. And she said this in this article. She said, A complaining spirit abuses the kindness of Christ. For God raised us up with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 2. Then Johnny says this, God will one day raise us up to showcase the riches and kindness of his grace through us, and I dare not diminish that glorious moment with a negative tongue. A grumbling spirit would only prove from heaven that I viewed his kindness as sorely lacking to me. On earth, grumbling is an indictment on how we view the Lord's kindness in and of itself. When we grumble and complain and whine and bicker with one another or bicker about our circumstances, we look at what we just read in Philippians chapter 2 about Christ's downward incarnation and his upward exaltation, and we say in our complaining, You have not done enough for me. Your kindness in doing that and your kindness in sustaining my life is not enough. Are you truly in our midst or not? That's what our grumbling says. But on the flip side, when we suffer without complaining, when we endure struggle and continue to sing his praises, We shine as lights to the watching world that we have experienced a God who has been infinitesimally, uh, uh, sorry, that's not the word I'm looking for. He has been kind to us with an infinity level. (laughs) That's what Paul says in verses 14 through 16. He says, Do all things without complaining or disputing. And then he says this that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Think of Paul as a model of this in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is in prison, and prison in ancient Rome is not fun and it's not enjoyable. And he's in prison and he's in prison for a while. And rather than complaining or grumbling or disputing, what does he do? Chapter one, he proclaims the gospel so that all the prison guard hears. That rather than filling his mouth with complaints, he fills his mouth with the goodness of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are to do as well. And if we do that, then we will share in the goodness of Christ and share in our sufferings with one another. Let's finish this off, verses 17 through 18. Paul says to end the section, "Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me." Paul's using an Old Testament image there about how the priest would take the sacrifice and then pour the drink offering on top of the sacrifice. And what Paul is saying is, when I see your own sacrifice, I am happy to view my life as a drink offering to pour on top of your existing sacrifice. And we do the same thing, don't we, together? In shepherd groups, in young adults, in the various smaller communities within this church, that we bear our burdens together, that we suffer with one another, that we pour out the drink offering of our own suffering on the sacrifice of another person's suffering. That we do not walk this Christian life alone, but we walk it together. And we will face hardships, but we face hardships as one unified body who will bear the burdens of one another. And ultimately, when we look at the humility Christ displayed in his downward incarnation, and we look at the majesty that Christ has displayed in his upward exaltation, we can express our gratitude by holding our tongues We can express our gratitude by working out our salvation with fear and trembling together corporately. Instead of complaints, our tongues can be filled with the praises of humble submission. Praises like what we find in the great old hymn, Whatever my God ordains is right. Which goes, Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking, May bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart. And pain and sorrow shall depart. And pain and sorrow shall depart. Friends, to live as Christ means that we ponder the downward incarnation to live as Christ means that we ponder the upward exaltation. To live as Christ that m- means that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To live as Christ means that we do all things, not just some things, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And to live as Christ means that we continuously say together, my God is true each morning new sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have one more opportunity to fill our mouths with the praises of our Savior. Whether you want to sing loudly, whether you want to raise your hands, whether you want to get down on your knees even, like it says in verses 9 through 11, we're going to enter a time of singing one more about the unrivaled, mighty, exalted, greatest of all time, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I've thought of this morning the foundation to this church that you have laid, but also the foundation that Mike Minter, our founding pastor, and the original team laid, a foundation of humility. And I pray that we as a church would not squander that inheritance of Christ-like humility that we have been given. I pray that we would not be a church that is jockeying for position with one another, but we would be a church that submits to the interests of one another. Help those around us in Loudoun County and Fairfax County see that we are in the midst of a generation shining as lights, that the way that we talk, the way that we act, would be proclaiming that we have a God who has been kind to us, kind to us beyond anything that we could imagine.